You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, I talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly on KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Cordell Bank is located just offshore of the KWMR listening radius off the Marin-Sonoma coast and is a thriving area with ocean life above and below the surface. There's lots going on during today's show. We'll be talking about our local state marine protected areas. We're going to hear the latest on the Sea Star Wasting Syndrome event that's happening right now on the West Coast. Many folks have been telling me about these sea stars and we're going to hear a little bit more about the science behind that and what, we've, what we know. And also a sneak preview of the San Francisco International Ocean Film Festival that starts this week. So we have a busy show. Stick with us. We're going to take a short musical break and be back to start the interviews. I have Miss Amy Trainer in the studio with me today from the Environmental, Ac- Environmental Action Committee of West Marin, also known as the EAC. So welcome, Amy. It's nice to have you in the studio. Thank you, Jenny. So great to be here. I normally have a lot of folks on the phone, so it's such a treat to have a real person here. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. So for folks that are not in the West Marin area, the Environmental Action Committee is a grassroots advocacy organization that was founded in 1971. And their efforts focus on protecting this region from immediate threats and to foster a wider understanding of its unique qualities. So I wanted to dive right in and talk about one of the leading things that you just started this past year. And this is rather new and really cool because the state of California put in a system, a network of marine protected areas in the entire state. And we have some off of Marin that have been here for the last few years. And the efforts that Amy's working with are basically monitoring and seeing how compliance is going. So, Amy, why don't we just start with a little bit of background on the state MPAs, when they went in, and where are they in context of our West Marin region? Sure. So the in 1999, the California legislature passed um, and the governor signed into law the Marine Life Protection Act, and that enabled, it sort of divided the coast up into like six different districts. And so Marin is part of the North Central District, and there was um, a great amount of funding from some private foundations to bring um, together this very broad array of, <coughs> of stakeholders, so fishermen and sport fishermen, commercial fishermen, um, dive boat users, um, conservation. Um, everybody with just a different interest and love of our ocean was part of this process. And so together, what ended up happening is roughly 16% of California's coastline is now protected as part of this marine protected area network. We're the only state 
in the nation that has anything like this coordinated network of um, marine protected areas. And so from a scientific standpoint, what they have found is that within these marine protected areas where um, commercial fishing and crabbing are limited, that um, because over time, not only the numbers of our fish and our marine species had declined, but also the size of them, um, roughly by uh, 90% across the board in many species. So what they've found is this sort of safe harbor areas, if you will, that the um, that the species are just allowed to rebound. And so that makes it better for everybody because there are these um, places where the species are growing bigger and their numbers are more abundant. And so outside, you know, they're obviously going to be moving in cases like salmon, you know, they're definitely migrating and crabs move um, pretty far too. And so it, it's just these sort of protection areas to really foster that growth and rebuild um, our stocks of our marine life. And so what the uh, Marin, Marin, Marin Marine Protected Area Watch Program is, it's a citizen science collaborative project um, that the Environmental Action Committee is spearheaded. And my core partners are the California Academy of Sciences, Dr. Rebecca Johnson, uh, the Point Reyes National Seashore, Dr. Ben Becker, as well as the Gulf of the Farallones National Marine Sanctuary and the California Ocean Science Trust. So what MPA Watch is, it really started in Southern California, and they had some of the first um, marine protected areas put in place. And so they said, okay, scientists, you know, every five, ten, you know, years are going to be definitely monitoring what's going on, you know, in control areas that are not part of a marine protected area as well as areas that are. Um, but what's going on on the land? What are the users like on the water, on the beach that is adjacent to these MPAs. And that way we have um, not only a snapshot of these human uses that might have some kind of impact on the MPA, um, but it also in the long run is going to help inform enforcement. I mean, any regulation is only as good if people follow it, if it's enforced. And so this also gives us an idea, okay, in these particular places, is there enough education? Do we need more outreach? Do we need to um, just better inform the public about, hey, here's the regulation and what it is and why it's important. So um, it's really connecting people to not only their ocean and their coast, um, but also these this very special um, protection. And so there are, in Marin County, we have two of the three kinds of marine protected areas. We have um, state marine reserves, which is most of Drake's Bay, and then about 1,000 feet off the headlands, um, the southern part of Drake's Estero, that's all a marine reserve. And basically the taking of all marine resources is prohibited. And then the upper parts of Drake's Estero and then outside um, um, off of that 1,000 feet off of the headlands um, is what's called a state marine conservation area. And in those... Um, for instance, what's called the Point Reyes State Marine Conservation Area, the recreational take of salmon by trolling and Dungeness crab by trap is allowed. And people can transit through any of these areas, but if it's a reserve, there's no take. But if it's a conservation area, then these particular allowed uses can go forward. So that's one of the most visible ones that we can see from land. But there's a couple other closures, uh, protected areas that are part of this MPA network that are a little bit further south. Duxbury Reef, 
is also a state conservation area, right? Yes. And so Duxbury Reef, it goes out about 1,000 feet um, from, I think it's the mean low high tide line. And we actually just did um, a volunteer training there a couple of uh, weeks ago. And it was great. It was low tide, so you could see a lot of the reef. And this kind of um, supports the work that Dr. Rebecca Johnson and the Cal Academy have been doing the Rocky Shore Intertidal Project. And so it really builds on and is using that kind of core group of volunteers that know already a lot about it, but that um, we can train them to say, help us collect this data and here's how it's going to be used. That's great because they're educating the public about the use and the intertidal and how to tread lightly. Exactly. And the great thing about this is there has been... Because it's a statewide network, there's been this movement with the um, California Ocean Science Trust has worked with all of the groups like EAC and a bunch of the NGOs down um, in Southern California to standardize the data set so that as we start looking at the data 5, 10, you know, 20 years out, we have this kind of uniform data that can really be applied um, statewide. So it's going to be very informative. It's really exciting to be a part of this process and to get this program started in Marin. Well, you got it started right away, which is great because I know the, the big concern once things got in place was, all right, how do we let everybody know that needs to know? And I know that's one component of this training program that you're doing is interfacing with potential users. What locations out in West Marin, where can pe- where would people maybe interface with people that might try to go fishing in a closed area? Is it like, would people go to Duxbury Reef and potentially? Except that's a conservation area. They can. Yeah, they can um, do the poke pole. And there are certain, um, I think, abalone take is allowed there. And then pretty much everything else is prohibited. Our volunteers, we've made it really clear that, you know, the goal here is not to perform enforcement. That's fish and wildlife. Um, that's the national seashore. That's the sheriff's you know, responsibility. And we're working with fish and wildlife wardens, even though there's so few of them, and working with the sheriff to really get them more educated and kind of understanding what these regulations are. But our, our volunteers, we you know, say safety is first. You never have to if you think someone is doing engaging in an unlawful activity, you definitely are not under any obligation to go approach them. You want to take notes if you can get um, you know a photo of their license plate or something like that. Fantastic. That helps you know the appropriate enforcement authorities to to take the steps they need. What they're really out there is interact facing with the public, saying, "Hey, did you know that this is part of this really special network um, statewide? And here are the restrictions." and regulations just for your information and can I answer any questions about some of the resources um, point them to um, places to get more information so really kind of serving as the ambassadors of these marine protected areas how many volunteers do you have right now that are kind of working on this or is it already tied into existing programs so other volunteer networks are there any new volunteers that are just doing this it's it's definitely both we definitely have um, a good number of new volunteers but the great thing in partnering um, like with the Gulf of the Farallons National Marine Sanctuaries Beach Watch program so Beach Watch is um, mostly monitoring um, sea life and like dead birds and taking numbers of those kind of, that kind of data. And we're really looking at um, more of the human uses. And so we've tapped into those volunteers who where our transects to monitor the MPAs exist. Almost in every case, there's a similar transect for a beach watch um, volunteer that overlaps. And so and 
so many of them are wonderfully willing to, you know, engage um, in this program with us. So that's great. Now, one thing that comes to mind is how do you control all this data? So you have multiple sources at your Beach Watch or um, National Park Service or Cal Academy, and they're taking data on observations they might see of some of the human uses. How is that all being kind of collected and used, analyzed, so that we can look at this later on down the line and say, okay, we see these trends? Right. So when we're collecting data, um, we're looking at both consumptive uses, like is there a pole in the water they're fishing? Are they pulling up a crab pot? Or what we call non-consumptive uses. Are they actively engaged in wildlife? Are they surfing? And then also delineate between onshore consumptive and non-consumptive and offshore consumptive and non-consumptive. So like I said, the data sheet has been standardized for the whole coast. And one of the really fantastic things that is about to um, be available to us is that Green Info Network has been creating this whole information management system so that people are going to be able to take their tablet out um, or even if they do take a a paper data sheet, they could scan it in and enter the data. Um, We'll be working, EAC, you know, I'm working with both Cal Academy and Point Reyes, Seashore to do the quality assurance and quality control on the data. And then um, I think at some point in the future, the Cal Ocean Science Trust will sort of start crunching the data. But having this information management system where you can go on and say, you know, as a volunteer doing this particular transect this week, okay, I'm going to cover it. What's the tide here? Um, What are the needs? So it helps the organizers like me manage volunteers, and then it helps the volunteers just stay better organized and more connected. So it's going to, it's a really fantastic tool that they're making available to all of us. That's great. For those just tuning in, this is Ocean Currents. I'm Jennifer Stock, and my guest right now is Amy Trainer with the Environmental Action Committee, and we're talking about the monitoring efforts in Marin's marine protected areas right off the coast here in Central California, or North Central California. So has there been any, um, wit- has people, have people witnessed things that are happening in these MPAs that shouldn't be happening? We haven't, um, just in the past few months that we've really had volunteers, you know, out um, performing transects, um, we haven't witnessed any um, (coughs) unlawful or inappropriate behavior. But there have been um, those instances before MPA Watch started. And it's interesting because when somebody sort of gets a ticket or, you know, kind of gets caught doing something like that, uh, the word has spread very quickly. And so it's actually been beneficial that, you know, even though there have only been a handful, if that, of cases, even statewide or even on the kind of northern part of the coast, it's really helped inform people and really kind of wake them up and get their attention and say, oh, hey, wait a minute, I really need to pay attention to this. This is real. These are regulations. There's a scientific, you know, foundation for this. It matters. I want to be, you know, I want to be a good citizen and participate and, and honor this. I think a lot of people just don't even know. And it's probably just by accident. They just don't realize it because you can't see these signs offshore or buoys. There's not none of that. You have to be clued in to all of this. And it seems like, excuse me, with having a permit to fish, either recreational or commercially, they get this information. I assume they get this information. Right. There's been a huge movement to um, increase signage um, at all of the 
fishing docks like Bodega Bay, all of the places where you would buy a fishing license. Um, they've made all of these booklets that I have here available, you know, a guide, you know, for each of the specific MPA <clears throat> regions, um, you know, it gives the lat long coordinates. And so some fishermen with more sophisticated gear have these plugged in to their radar, and so they know when they're entering and when they're exiting an MPA. But I think you're right. There's part of what this is about is increasing that outreach, increasing the education. You know, we want people to know, and we think that when they do know, they are going to really respect this and understand, especially, you know, the fishermen, like, this is really beneficial to us. I think there's some positive stories, too, to share with them that I think are going to start coming out more. Excuse me. There's this frog that jumped in my throat Monday morning and it hasn't been able to leave. Um, I know offshore, and this is not in the state MPAs, but there's been these rockfish conservation areas that have been put in place over 10 years ago, limiting or eliminating rockfish ground fishing within two depths in the entire western seaboard. Because like you were saying earlier, rockfish have been overfished. They have, sm- have smaller fish, and these get to be huge fish, and they become more fecund, more able to reproduce as they get older. And so with this closure in effect, and, and a monitoring effort has been in place in the last two years with California Sea Grant. Our, Calif- our the Cordell Bank Sanctuary has been a partner in this because Cordell Bank is one of the sites for monitoring. But they're seeing just incredible benefits in just within the 10-year closure. The fish are bigger. They're getting more diversity of species caught. And I'm definitely going to have a show on this later on when they've had the chance to really assess all the big changes. But this has been just the preliminary results. And it's really positive to see that. It's positive for everybody. Yes, it really is. So we'll have to keep tuned with that and see how that's going. What types of folks are you seeing come forward that want to volunteer and get involved in this? You know, we have, uh, it's been really great because we have everyone from 20-somethings that just, you know, whether they love Duxbury Reef or they love our, you know, Limantour Beach and say, you know, I I think this is so fantastic. I want to be a part of it. Um, You know, there's a fair number of retired folks that thankfully that have time on their hands and this is something that they're willing to spend their time on and support. Um, you know, we've had a mom there who's like, you know, I want to do this because I think it's great and I want my kids to know about it. And she just herself wanted to get more educated. So it's been really uh, encouraging the nice diversity of people that have come out to to become volunteers. Is this going to go on for a while? Is, there, is this a a period of education effort, or is this hopeful to be a long-term thing? Uh, we're hopeful that it will be a long-term fa- thing. I just applied for my second year of funding, which also is going to include that we're um, planning to do some activities for World Oceans Day, which is Saturday, June 7th, and then also do um, a lecture series partnering with Dominican University on marine resource and ocean science and protection this fall. Um, so really exciting things. Really, you know, Californians love their coast. Our coastline is a world treasure our marine resources and, you know, state uh, jurisdiction goes out three miles. You know, you and the the sanctuaries have, you know, far more uh, jurisdiction. But I think just having that nearshore habitat protected, um, as you know, is so vital to so many of our, uh, our, our populations. So That's great. I yeah. know. It's positive. I want to get involved with your lecture series. That sounds great. Fantastic. 
Well, another nice thing that EAC has done, the Environmental Action Committee, is really celebrated the wildlife that we have here in the West Marin region by starting up this festival, the Birding and Nature Festival. Yes. Coming up, can you tell us a little bit about registration and any highlights for that? Absolutely, I would love to. Um, this is the fifth annual Point Reyes mm. Birding and Nature Festival. It takes place uh, Friday, April 25th through Sunday, April 27th. Um, we have some of the finest naturalists and bird guides, um, certainly in California, if not the world. And, um, you know, people like Keith Hansen and Jules Evans and David Wimpheimer, Sarah Allen doing um, marine mammals, Jack Muir Laws doing um, sketching in nature. And this year, we're, I'm really proud uh, that we're bringing David Allen Sibley, who is just, as everybody knows, such a rock star and so highly respected birder, author, artist. He has his new Sibley Guide to Birds, second edition coming out in just a few weeks. So there are going to be some book signing events. He's going to do the keynote presentation at our banquet. And um, it's such a great event. We have events um, for kids that are family friendly this year. I've really been wanting to um, bring the underserved uh, and bilingual community into the natural world and provide um, free activities for them. So um, Juan Carlos Solis from Wildcare, he's their education director, is doing a bilingual uh, free walk over in East Marin on Sunday. We have a kid's bird count. Um, we have you know, a family-friendly hike out at Abbott's. We have the first annual Rich Stall Cup Memorial Nature Hike for Young Birders that David Allen Sibley is going to lead. And I made this a free hike. Um, kids ages 11 to 17 are eligible to apply, and they just have to submit an essay about what birding means to them and why they would want to have a chance to go birding um, with David Sibley. So um, it's a it's such an amazing weekend. It's, you know, ecotourism. It supports our businesses. You know, there's a good five or 600 birders that come to town, shop at our stores, stay at our bed and breakfast, eat at our restaurants. Um and it really furthers EAC's vision of teaching everyone about how amazing uh, the diversity of habitats is out here and our work as advocates to really protect that and maintain that um, strong, healthy balance of diversity. It's a great event. I'm so excited every time it rolls around and someday I'll get to go on some of these walks. <laughs> my toddler will not be a toddler anymore. Wonderful. <laughs> um, it is. You know, I was ta a friend of mine that I talked to from way back when I was with the Park Service a long time ago said she came to Point Reyes for one day and she said she listed off this huge list of new birds for her and she was just was raving and raving and it made me realize, gosh, I know this place is special, but it really, really is truly so special for not only marine wildlife, but all these migratory species that move through here. And I'm so happy this, this festival got started a couple of years ago and you really get the best of the best out here. We do. We're so fortunate. And it's really a celebration of those guides and naturalists as well as what we have out here and how much we learn from them. And it's timed to be at the height of spring migration. So we usually see a good 200 species. And it's, again, it's such a great community of birders, um, many people from the Bay Area, but we're having people come from Europe now, um, come from all over the country. So um, it's People are discovering what a special place Point Reyes is and, and certainly how amazing the wildlife um, is here. That's great. Well, lastly, just we have a couple more minutes. And I know you are, are one of the most busy women out here in West Marin. <laughs> and there's yet another effort that EAC is working on that I really paid attention to. You're working on oil spill 
response effort and the capability of the state to respond. And I know you're just getting started in this effort, but what's what's going on with that? And how, how is EAC involved with that? Yeah, so I worked on um, state and federal oil spill prevention and response issues in Washington state. And when I came to California, um, I was really curious at the state of um, prevention, which I think prevention has to be the top priority. We have to do everything we can to ensure that whether it's our oil tankers or these ultra-large container vessels, that we have the tugs and the whether firefighting and salvage capability to prevent a major disaster. And so I started looking, and California has a very strong state law, the Limpert Keen Sea Strand Act, and it requires the state to have the best to have the uh, maintain the best achievable protection to our coast and ocean resources through best available technology. And um, you know, Alaska is really kind of the pioneer in the country about what is best available technology. And so our initial look really revealed that the state is not meeting the best available technology standard, and um, which is unfortunate. Uh, we also looked at the use of chemical dispersants and really feel strongly that science does not support the use of them because they just don't work in cold water, and that actually ocean water has it the own naturally occurring bacteria that will break down oil. So if you're going to have a spill offshore, it's going to break down, that we can look at new technology like skimmers, boats that can skim this oil um, much more efficiently than they could 20 years ago. And so investing in that kind of technology rather than dumping a bunch of toxic chemicals I firmly believe the reason there's such a big dead zone in the Gulf is because they dumped millions of gallons of Corexit, which is a highly toxic. It actually, when it combines with oil, enhances and greatly increases the toxicity. And so you think about the long-term cumulative impacts on the whole um, food, marine food web, and it can just be devastating. So I've really been advocating for like, hey, these are the wealthiest corporations in the world. 99% of the container vessels that come into San Francisco Bay are not U.S.-owned. These are foreign flagged vessels. We need to make them simply um, held accountable, be held accountable for the risk that they are creating to our coast and ocean resources. So it's a it's a long process. Um, we're making some progress, still in conversations. Um, but yeah, it's something I feel really passionately about. That's wonderful. Well, based on the amount of traffic uh, ships that come in, I mean, it's a highway. It, it is a highway high- here. Absolutely. And I know on the sanctuary end, we're working a lot on the ship strike part of that in terms of the impact to endangered whales. But we've been lucky, and I actually was just thinking this morning, I'm not going to knock on wood in the radio studio, but, you know, Costco Busan was the last spill we had, and it was pretty minor compared to the Definitely. potential. Yes. And we always have to be vigilant on this issue. So I'm really pleased that you're involved with that and helping raise the bar with all the different agencies. It's a very, very extensive list of partners that are involved. So Yes, thank you. Great. Well, Amy, thank you so much. Is there a website for folks to tune in to some of the information that you would like to put people to, including the Birding Festival? Yeah, so the Birding Festival has its own website. It's uh, all spelled out, pointraisebirdingfestival.org. There's still some tickets um, available for the book signing event, um, which we're co-sponsoring with Point Raise Books, as well as um, many of the field hikes have not sold out yet. So there's definitely still a chance to participate, but tickets are really going fast. Uh, EAC's website, eacmarin.org, all kinds of great information and resources on the website. And then if anybody, you know, would like more information, I'm at 663-9312 and don't hesitate to give me a call. Amy, thank you so much for coming in today and giving us the lowdown on MPAs and oil and the birding festival. Thank you, Jenny. My pleasure. Take care. You too. And for those of you still here, please stay with us. We'll be back in a little bit 
talking about sea star wasting syndrome. Stay with us. For those of us that walk the shores of Point Reyes and beyond, you may have seen or heard about an event that is taking place right now all along the West Coast from Alaska to Baja, and sea stars are literally wasting away. Uh, this, event, this event has been called Sea Star Wasting Disease or Syndrome, and it's caused a lot of alarm amongst beachgoers as well as the scientific community. So I'm very thankful today to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Pete Ramundi, who is a University of California Santa Cruz professor, chair of the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Long Marine Lab. And he's been the primary contact for details regarding this issue. So thank you, Pete, for making the time to call in today. You're very welcome. I understand the geographic extent of this is quite extensive and causing quite a bit of concern. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, right now, we've found uh, the wasting in sea stars ranging from um, Alaska down through the border of Mexico. We're not really clear whether it extends south into Mexico. We don't have a lot of data from Mexico, but at least through from San Diego up into Alaska. And what exactly do people notice? Is that, from my understanding, just from pictures, it just looks like the sea star sort of is melting away. And how, what is ex- what do people see when they diagnose this? Well, one thing that I want to just be really upfront about is that when we call something sea star wasting, it's really a description of a series of symptoms. You know, it's not a real formal description of the disease. It's a series of symptoms, and the symptoms vary a lot depending upon the species of interest. I think most of your listeners are people that would have seen this out in the field in what we call intertidal locations, tidal locations, and there's just two or three primary species that occur out there. The most common one is the ochre star. Um, it's this purple or orange sea star that's typically very common out in tidal areas, and that has these characteristic symptoms that include necrosis, which just means decaying uh, tissue, followed by losses of arms and sometimes just sort of wasting away. Other species, the, the key one underwater, what we call subtitle, is Pycnopodia, the giant sunflower star. And, and that species is the one that really does sort of melt away, and it does it very quickly over the course of perhaps 24 hours, whereas the tidal species takes longer than that to waste away. So those are the symptoms that we are seeing, and it seems to be just a couple species do no, we no, no. Let me let me interrupt. It's 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 more than a couple. There's we've documented it in, in twelve species. There's there's not that many species along the west coast. It's it's common uh-huh. in most of the rocky reef associated species. Okay, so all the rocky most of the rocky reef species. How about subtitally underwater? Um, what type of monitoring has happened, um, and to what depth to see the impact to that community? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, originally this was. Well, there, the original observations were both underwater and intertidally, but primarily intertidally. Most of the early underwater observations were up in the um, northwest, especially within the Puget Sound, Vancouver area. We've recently uh, initiated a program to look what we call subtidally, and we've been diving along central California. There's some uh, information from uh, more central California near the Point Reyes, further north actually than that, and, and south and also in B.C., in addition, we've recently got some new observations that have come from ROVs and that are operating at much deeper depth. 
to see whether there's any depth data that can be mined from these ROB surveys. We haven't really got into that those data yet, but we plan to and to see whether it goes beyond diver depths. But what I can tell you is in places where people have been diving, it has been, if not worse, at least as bad as it is in these tidal areas. It's just that there's it's harder to get observations from those areas. Right, pretty hard to get. Do we have any ideas at this point as the to the cause of this? Yeah, yeah, we do. Uh, and I'm going to describe this, you know, the sequence of events that we think occurs because it's not a it's not a straightforward mm-hmm. event. What we think happens is that there is an initial insult to the uh, organism, and an insult just means something that compromises it. And and we we really believe at this point that it is a pathogen, and a pathogen that in the way we're using it is either a bacteria or a parasite or a virus, and that causes this insult. And the the form of the insult is either it compromises the immune system or it actually does some damage to tissue or perhaps both. But what happens at that point is that there's a secondary infection that's almost certainly bacterial, and that bacterial infection is what causes the bulk of the damage and leads to the, 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 the majority of the symptoms that we call wasting. We're doing experiments. Uh, there's a people up at Western Washington University and Cornell University that are doing experiments to see what the mode of transmission is, whether the transmission can be through the water or has to be through contact or both. And, and those experiments are ongoing. Right now it looks as though there is transmission through the water, which helps us explain how it spreads around among locations. So we're getting pretty close, I think, to knowing what's going on. Interesting. Now, I'm assuming that, like, bacteria, parasite, and virus, these are things that are common in the water all the yes. time. So what makes this initial compromise to the sea star? And it's just very odd that it's happening on such a wide scale. Yes. Is there an increase in these potential pathogens that are well, infecting? You really hit on, you know, one of the two major questions that is um, really important at this point. Given that it's a pathogen, the real question for that is, is it a native pathogen that's gone rogue, or is it an exotic pathogen? If it's a native pathogen that's gone rogue, then the second question kicks in. Well, why now and why where it is, and how does it spread? And if it's an exotic, it, the second question kicks in, which is, where did it come from and how did it get here? And, um, and what are the modes of its distribution? And those two things will follow, we hope, from the answer to the question as to what it is. The work that's being done to describe what it is also contains a molecular component, and it's possible that when the molecular you know, sort of signature of that pathogen is, is found, we'll be able to identify whether it's a local or an endemic species or an exotic species. And if exotic, where did it come from? And then most of these other questions will become the prominent ones. And they're prominent because without knowing, you know, whether it's exotic or native and whether if native it's gone rogue or if it's exotic where it came from, we have no way of predicting what the outcome is likely to be or how long it will persist, whether we're in the beginning of the outbreak, in the middle, or in the end of it. And, and I think even more importantly, whether this is going to, uh, you know, initiate other types of events that result from um, the loss of these top predators. And, um, and we, th- those are all questions that are being addressed but not answered yet. That's interesting. You know, I have to ask, um, because a lot of people have asked me as an educator about uh, the impact of radiation from Fukushima. And uh, there's been a lot of very scary testimony or blogs put out with probably inaccurate information. But can you just speak a little bit to that in terms of 
the radiation potential from Fukushima and any sure. possible relation? Yes, I, I can, and I'm really glad you asked that because we encountered the same thing. It, we do not think that there's any relationship between the radiation from Fukushima and, um, and what's going on here. Uh, and in part, that's because we feel pretty comfortable with what the, the pathogen, you know, what the likely pathogen is, and also because, you know, the models and actually the observations that, that are on the West Coast don't suggest the radiation is higher than ambient. But uh, the other part of it is, is that the characteristics of the disease or the, uh, the event are very different, meaning it's from Alaska down to Southern California. And there's no models at this point of any spread of anything, um, you know, coming from the tsunami, be it debris or radiation, that that puts that stuff, any of it, you know, in Southern California. And so, what we we're really comfortable saying that there's no evidence, none, that it's related to radiation. That's great. Now, you did mention before that this is. Uh a unique event, but it's not exactly solo. This has happened in the past before, where there there have been these big die-offs before, um, historically. And I I vaguely remember during an El Nino in the 90s, um, I was living on Catalina Island at the time, teaching down there, and all our sea stars were melting away, and it was attributed to the warm water. Is that a similar event? Yeah, and that's why earlier I just talked about it in the context of that this is a description of symptoms. So you're exactly right. You know, sea star wasting events happen, you know, pretty regularly. So there was the 97, 98. That's probably when you were out in Catalina. And as you say, it really had a major impact on in Southern California and Mexico with respect to sea stars and to some extent with sea urchins. There was an even bigger event in 83, 84, again, associated with El Nino. And then in the late 70s, there was a really big event that was in the Gulf of California. All of those were associated with warm water. And there were... You know, so the reason why this is an unprecedented event is because of geography, but also because, meaning it's really widespread. Those 83, 84, 97, 98 never really spread much above um, Point Conception, which is there in California. And that's because they were so linked to the warm water, which, did, did, which didn't go much above Point Conception. We don't know, you know, in retrospect, we don't know whether those events were related to just the warming of the water compromising the animal, which it could have done, or whether there were some... Uh, pathogens that came up with the warm water that caused the problem, but either way, it was clearly associated with warm water. So the real difference this time is it's not a, it's not in any way associated with warm water. In fact, we've been in a cool phase since ninety seven, ninety eight, and the uh, locations where it was first seen and where it's seen, you know, currently, are not in warm water areas, and there's been no sort of you know sort of El Nino events, and so that's the reason why it's so troubling to us is it's not like the other events, and so there's no prediction that when the El Nino switches off or goes to a La Nina event, that the disease is going to go away because it's not associated with the warm water. That's what's so troubling. Yeah, well, that'll be interesting to see because apparently we're moving towards an El Nino period, which is associated with warmer waters. So it'll be interesting to see how sea stars, this event kind of reacts to another condition. That's right. It may make it much worse if there's if there truly is warming water in this particular event that we're in now is unrelated, then that would be kind of a synergistic, but badly synergistic effect, perhaps. So I think this type of thing just really underscores to me the importance of long-term monitoring. And I know that you've been a big part of um, the Pacific Rocky Intertidal Monitoring Network, a multi-agency network. Can you talk just a little bit about this consortium of research groups and how you all work together to, to gather and keep data together so we have something to look at in a systematic way? 
Yeah, I, I, I'm really happy to do that. We, there's this group called uh, Marine, multi-agency Rocky Intertidal Network, and then this other thing called Pacific Rocky Intertidal Network. And uh, and we uh, are a consortium of a bunch of groups. Um, they, they're funded by a variety of sources, including BOEM, which is the Bureau of Energy Management, and, uh, and uh, the Packard Foundation, and the State of California and Ocean Science Trust, and and uh, the real goal was to standardize monitoring up and down the coast so and to establish baselines, but also to keep an ongoing record that could be used for a variety of purposes. So a good example would be oil spills. You know, the, it, this initiated because of the Exxon Valdez oil spill and the understanding that there was really almost no baseline data for, from which to judge impact. So that's why BOEM got involved. But since then, a, a lot of groups have jumped on because there is a great need for baseline monitoring and ongoing monitoring so that you have these baselines to establish what was there before something happened. And this is a perfect example of it where there's this uh, event that has swept up and down the coast. And because we have sites up and down the coast, we cannot, we not only were there to detect it, but also to estimate what the impacts are, both in terms of the sea stars and the communities in which the sea stars live. And that's the next phase of this for us is to sample these sites again post the disease and see how the communities respond to the loss of these species. And this is these monitoring programs are present both in the subtitle and in the intertitle. That's going to be really interesting to see. Um, I'm sure that ups it a little bit for all those going out to do those intertidal surveys. It's going to be a very different year. It could be. What it looks like without sea stars. Because um, sea stars, they're considered a keystone species, aren't they? Without sea stars, there's really a big change in predator um, the prey they typically eat. Yeah, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to put on two hats here. One is going to be the, the kind of the concerned conservation biologist, but the other one is going to be the, the scientist, the ecologist. And, you know, as you noted, uh, the, one of the, the actual signature poster child for uh, keystone species is the ochre star. That's the one that was first described as a keystone species. And, and there, were, there was work that was done primarily in Washington that suggested that its removal would lead to pretty broad consequences for the rest of the community. And um, and if this is true, you know, you're going to have a very different area out there. It's not going to be a desert. So I want your your um, listeners to understand we're not talking about it going from this lush area to a desert. It's just going to be different. And uh, and the, But the other thing, now putting on my scientist hat, is that we rarely get the opportunity to test the, the ecological theory over big ranges, over big spatial scales. Much ecological theory is developed on small-scale experiments. And, and so this is an opportunity to see whether these predictions that are um, not so much dire, but important, are going to be manifest over large spatial scales because we have a removal experiment going on over an immense spatial scale. Very interesting. Um, are you interested in members of the public uh, sharing their observations somehow? Yes. In fact, if they go to our website, seastarwasting.org, that's one of our key uh, contributions, I think, to understanding this the degree and the, and the spatial spread of this is we get a lot of public observations. And what, there's an actual form online that the, the public can fill out and uh, send it to us, and then we are able to vet it and to put it into our database. And there's also a map that was last updated a few days ago, I think uh, uh, February 26th, that shows the, uh, the incidence of wasting along with areas where we've not found it. So you can see it's patchy along the whole West Coast, uh, what species are affected, when these docu- the documentation was made. And these maps are a hybrid between our own observations with our groups that are going out, but also a lot of public data that's been put in. And it's, it's, it's incredibly valuable because 
to 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 be really you know completely understood, one of the key questions is whether there were a single initiation, whether there was a single initiation point or multiple initiation points, and how the spread occurred. And to do this, you need what we call an epidemiological map, which shows where it is and when it got there. And uh, we have an immense amount of data, perhaps more data that has been collected by in this event than any other marine disease that has ever been documented, and in large part, it's because of public observation. Fantastic. So folks should go to seastarwasting.org yep. to get information and to figure out how they can share their observations with the scientific community. Exactly. Well, Pete, thank you so much to wrap it up right now, but I really appreciate you calling in on your busy, busy schedule and sharing your information about this event. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right. Take care. Folks tuning in, you've been listening to Ocean Currents, and that was Dr. Pete Ramundi from UC Santa Cruz talking about the Sea Star Wasting event that's happening right now on the West Coast. If you go out to the intertidal zone, you're very likely to encounter sea stars that are either on their way to dying by wasting away or uh, not even there. So it's a really interesting scientific event that's happening and a lot of interesting monitoring going on. I'm really glad Pete could join us. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be talking about the International Ocean Film Festival happening in San Francisco. This is Jennifer Stock. You're listening to Ocean Currents. Live with me on the phone is Anna Blanco from the International San Francisco International Ocean Film Festival. Anna, you're live on the air. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for calling in. Fantastic. Well, give us a quick update. We have about five minutes just on some highlights of the week, maybe starting with Wednesday and the opening gala event. Well, we have a really exciting opening gala this uh, Wednesday night, March 5th, at the Aquarium of the Bay. It starts at 5.30, and we're very honored to have Captain Don Walsh uh, amongst us. He's going to be our keynote speaker. He uh, is the first person to have gone down to the Marianas Trench back in January of 1960, and he's going to be addressing the audience with a, a wonderful um, presentation called um, Our Oceans, the Explorers, and the Storytellers. Um, prior to his presentation, we have an open night gala with um, wine and, and hors d'oeuvres and donated seafood nibbles by some of the best Bay Area restaurants, and that's in the Aquarium of the Bay. So it's the perfect kickoff to uh, the following uh, days. We have over 50 films being screened from 17 different countries. Um, at last count, I think we have about 16 Filmmakers are going to be present to be on stage for Q&A. So we're very, very excited to have all these films. They're every genre you can imagine, animation, documentary, narratives, and they each have their own story to tell about the ocean. Um, we're very pleased to have, for the first time, two new film blocks. One is specifically on whales, and that's on Saturday at 4 o'clock. And the other new one we have we're very excited about is the new dive program. Uh, it features a wonderful film by the by filmmaker Bob Talbot. It's called Ocean Men Extreme Dive, and that's on Sunday at 1 o'clock. And there's a panel discussion immediately following that film program, which has Bob Talbot and a couple of other um, key um, diving people from um, the Bay Area, but also from across the nation. So... Um, in addition to the films, there will be a chance to ask them questions about their experience as divers and some of the questions that, that the fam- films themselves raise. 
So there's a lot to do, a lot uh, for everyone of all ages. Um, and all the films take place at the Bay Theater, which is at Pier 39 in San Francisco. Very nice. I was just looking at the panel that you'll have for the Extreme Diving Program and a uh, local diver out here who we've had on KWMR on Ocean Currents before, Ron Elliott, will be there. So that's fantastic. As well as Matt Vieta, who we also had on the radio, talking about diving at Cordell Bank. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kip Evans, who we've worked with quite a bit within Sanctuaries, very well-known photographer, underwater filmmaker. And Francesca, I know she's very involved with the Gulf of the Farallon Sanctuary. So that is going to be a very rich panel of really great people. Yes, it is. And there's another new film that um, Kip Evans has also released called California Hope Spots. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Hope Spots, but um, um, it's part of the whole marine protected area. And Kip has a new film. And that is airing on Thursday at 4.30 in the afternoon, and he will again be on hand to answer um, Q&A for that particular film. So we're excited to have him here for that as well. That's wonderful. That ties in really well to the beginning of my program. I had um, an interview about the Marine Protected Area monitoring efforts that are happening out here, and this is one about the entire state process of MPA. So that's great. Mm-hmm. Way to go, Kip. Mm-hmm. Cool. So tell me a little bit about the masquerade part of the gala. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so happy you asked about that because we decided that um, for the gala, which usually we have about three to 350 people for that evening, we thought we'd have a little fun and um, have everyone show up with a mask. It's obviously optional, but um, if it's ocean-inspired and it's a mask, it's, it's very welcomed. Um I believe most of our volunteers have secured some um, masks, and so we're very excited to add just a little bit of of fun to uh, an otherwise already really fun event. That's great. Well, Anna, can you just give us the website for folks to get more information, the schedule, and get tickets? Yes, the website is www.oceanfilmfest.org. You can also call us here at the office at 415-561-6251 if you have any questions. Um, but everything's on the website, including tickets, every description of every program. And would like to give one more shout-out to the student film competition, which will be airing on Sunday at 1030, and it's a top ten finalist of a, our third annual student film competition. So they're films from middle school and high school students. So that should be very fun. Well, thank you so much, Anna, for calling in. Thanks for having me. Have a great week. Thank you. Talk to you soon. All right. Take Bye-bye. care. OceanFilmFest.org is the place to go to get more information about this annual event. This is the 11th annual San Francisco International Ocean Film Festival. 50 films, 17 countries, a wide diversity of independently produced ocean films. It's really a really wonderful event if you can make it to San Francisco for any of those programs. I've been in the past. It's just so cool. Well, that is about it for today. Thank you for tuning in. Um, Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month, and I have a podcast. You can go to iTunes and look for Ocean Currents or subscribe via my website, cordellbank.noaa.gov to get past episodes. And I love hearing from listeners. Please feel free to email me your comments or suggestions, future topics you'd love to learn more about um, at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. But we are out of time today, and I appreciate everyone listening in, tuning into Ocean Currents. Thanks again for tuning in. Have a great afternoon.
Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.